HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Wides, your host. You remember back in school, there were always those kids who were like always sick, the sickly ones, the ones who like their noses were always running. They were always missing school. Remember those? I was never one of those. I was more of the like once a year get really sick and drop for two weeks kinds of kids. You know, chicken pox, we all had. Scarlet fever. Who gets scarlet fever? It's like very medieval. The croup, that sort of stuff. You know, like do it big. I'm still that way. You know, once a year, get a bad cold. It takes me down for a week. Then I'm okay. This was the week. You can kind of hear it. Hear that in my voice? That kind of sexy gruff. Mm. It's there. But you know what? It's also allergy season here in New York because this was the year with no winter. So I'm not sure. But anyway, that's what you're hearing in my voice. Um, and so one year in sixth grade, just as my mother was about to go back to work after 15 years as a stay-at-home mom, I got pneumonia. I have no idea how I got pneumonia. I wasn't like stranded out, you know, in the snow or anything. I just got pneumonia. One day I was at school I felt kind of crappy. The next thing I knew, I was home taking gigantic antibiotic pills and watching all my children for two weeks. Now, it wasn't so bad because by sixth grade, I was not so happy in school and wasn't having a great time. So it wasn't such a bad thing missing two weeks. And those two weeks conveniently bled right into February break, which is something we have here in the Northeast. I think they established February break so that they could shut off the heat in the schools for a week and save money. But so I had my two weeks off of pneumonia and then I had another like week or something off for February break. So it was a total coup for me. 
And for some other unfathomable reason, the first being how I got pneumonia, my pathologically cheap parents decided that I alone, post-pneumonia recovery time, should take a trip to Florida to visit my grandparents that winter. Not the whole family, just me. And that I should fly there alone. Now, this was in 1979, and it was the Carter-era recession years. We didn't fly. I'd never even flown before. I had never been on a plane in my life. We drove everywhere we went. Even with the gas crisis, we drove. So every year Christmas, we drove to Florida. And along the way, we camped. When we drove to Florida, we camped as soon as we hit weather that was warm enough. So usually by the time we got to the Carolinas, there was no snow on the ground. We were camping. Occasionally, we would stay in a Days Inn if it was too cold because it was $19 a night at the Days Inn. But that was like a, a sparse luxury. And also when we drove, we brought all of our food with us. All of it. We had a, like a mini kitchen built out that my father, who was a shop teacher, built this little like mini portable kitchen and it fit into the back of the car and later into the back of our used VW camper, which we drove in until it died one day. There was no way that we were going to spend money on food on the road when we could pack all of our 70s style, vaguely healthy-esque type food into Coleman coolers and Tupperware and take it with us. So this plan to put me on an airplane alone and ship me off to my grandparents in Miami, where I would be fed a steady diet of Entenmann's cake, ice cream, challah with margarine, frozen potato blintzes, spaghetti with ketchup, and kosher pizza. It was like, it was like I hit the lottery at 11. Like I had hit the travel and shitty food lottery. And I don't remember my grandparents actually ever eating a single vegetable except they did like to eat cold canned peas, which I did not understand. Maybe like a pickled beet once in a while, but there was never a vegetable in their house. I mean, this was serious, like, let's eat white carbs and fat. That was their life. And pre-cooked frozen chicken. <clears throat> now, I think by that point, the writing was on the wall for my parents' marriage. Like, they were just starting to give the whole thing up. And I think they were just kind of like, they were throwing up their hands. So I think that's what broke them and said, oh, let's just ship her off and let her fly. Screw it. Let's just go. We're done. So a ticket was bought on Delta and off we went to, I think, LaGuardia. It could have been Islip. I don't even know. And and just to show you how much has changed in the 20, 30 something odd years since then, 30. Not only did my father walk with me to the gate, through security without his own ticket, but they actually let him get on the plane with me before we took off. He got on the plane with me and hung out. Now, what if he had had like explosives hidden in his knockoff generic 1970s running shoes that he was wearing? Hmm. So anyway, it was time to go. He said goodbye. The plane took off. I put on the plastic headphones. That was pretty exciting. And I listened to the top 40 radio station that Delta had coming from the armrest, which I also thought was really cool. And then as soon as the plane leveled off, they came over the PA and they announced that in honor of Delta's 50th anniversary, they would be serving champagne with breakfast. It was a morning flight. Champagne. 
with breakfast. Now, this was only a two and a half hour flight. That's all it takes to get to Miami. And we were getting served not only a hot breakfast, but also champagne, which they handed right over to me. No questions asked. I was 11. Here, have some champagne. Then came out the little trolley and I was handed a tray of steak and eggs. Yeah, steak and eggs. Now, we never, I mean, this was not something we ate in our house. I had never even actually heard of people eating steak for breakfast. So I was a little like, hmm, steak? Okay. But the point is, it was like a full entire hot meal with something you needed a knife to cut on a two and a half hour flight with booze and free packs of cards thrown in. It was like I was in a scene from Mad Men. Only I wasn't smoking. Other people were smoking. Then Reagan was elected in 1980. And that was the beginning of the end for this country. And he deregulated the airlines and everything went crazy and flights got cheaper and budgets were cut. And now when I fly six hours to Portland, which I do a few times a year, I get six tiny little pretzels in a bag. I think you get one for each hour you fly. Now it's okay with me that the airline stopped serving food. It's fine with me because the food had gotten terrible. I didn't want to eat it. And I would rather pay less for my ticket and bring my own food than eat the crappy airline food. And I'd bring it if it was allowed through security that is. I mean, I still bring my own food, but there's certain things you can't bring because you're not allowed to get through security. Most of it's not. And so often I get stuck eating what I have to eat in airports, which I actually have to say, airport food has actually, it's gotten better in everywhere except New York, of course, because in New York, everything always sucks. But airport food is getting better in other places. It's weird. See, you thought I was going to be like, oh, my God, there's no food in the airports and it sucks. But you know what? It's actually getting better. This is me trying to be optimistic. So almost every airport I've passed through in the last couple of years, except for LGA, LaGuardia and JFK and Newark, have better food options now. And it's not just like junk and foodiness and sports bars. You have to look around. You have to do a little shopping. But there's actually better stuff out there now. Like you, you can actually eat okay. And I realize that it's because airline delays are so common now and so endemic that it gives the airports a built-in consumer base, customer base, to spend more time and money while the wait is on, while they wait out their inevitable delays. So I think that's what's happened. It's like the airlines have gotten together with the, the concessionaires and said, well, you know, we're going to make them wait longer, so you may as well make them spend more money. And so there's better food and there's shopping. So now, like, did you ever notice now that, like, being in an airport, it's kind of like being in a mall. But it's a mall with slightly better food, I have to say. Road food, on the other hand, still has a long way to go. If you're traveling by car, you're still kind of screwed. Now, I understand why when we made those long car trips to Florida, we brought our own food. Now, I understand that as an adult, a working adult with a modest salary, I would probably do the same thing. And I do. I actually pack food along when I go on car trips so I can avoid the interstate food and foodiness options. But sometimes you get stuck with nothing when you're on the road or on a layover in an airport. And then it's fast food and foodiness to the horizon in every direction as far as the eye can see. Except I have to say the one or two exceptions, which, you know, I don't like to normally name names, but I have to say Panera, not so bad. 
Panera makes good black bean soup, which I think is a perfect food choice. There's Oban Pan, always good for like soup or oatmeal or even a salad. And they're not so bad. You can actually break away from the, you know, burger, fried chicken, terrible pizza triad. And you can get like a decent thing, like a soup or salad or something that, you know, a salad that doesn't come chopped up in a plastic cup that you're supposed to shake into your mouth. Do they still make that? That thing was kind of sick. Now, I suppose before the current era of fast food chains at every rest stop, things weren't great either. I, you know, probably what, 20 years there's been fast food chains at every rest stop, but maybe longer than that. See, to me, when I say 20 years, I think I'm thinking back to the 70s, but 20 years, I'm thinking back to the 90s. So I remember when we were driving down to Florida that, um, first of all, I-95 wasn't even finished yet. So every year we would drive down, I-95 would get a little bit longer and longer. That's how old I am. But I do remember that there were like sit-down restaurants at these rest areas, like sit down regular restaurants, like with people cooking in a kitchen. Now, we, of course, never patronized them because it cost too much and it would slow us down. We had to make good time, had to stay on schedule. So those places were probably terrible also in their own dated ways. I'm sure the food was horrendous. But, you know, we used to pass a lot of Howard Johnson's on the road, too. I don't think Howard Johnson's even really exist as a restaurant anymore. I haven't seen one in a really, really long time. And once in a while, we'd get to stop at Howard Johnson's for ice cream, but that was it. We would never eat there because there was this mythology on our family that Howard Johnson's were universally slow with the service no matter where they were. Every single Howard Johnson's in the world had uniformly horrible service, and so we could not stop there because we would lose time. We couldn't waste the time. I'm not sure why we were in such a rush to begin with to get to Miami and begin the margarine challah and frozen blintz feast. I suppose. Although the funny thing about Hojo, Howard Johnson's, is that originally the real Howard Johnson, who was actually a real guy, Howard Johnson, hired none other than Jacques Pepin. You know Jacques Pepin, famous French celebrity chef, dean of the French Culinary Institute, I think. He was on Heritage Radio. Oh, oh see, there you go. Real yeah. guy, Jacques Pepin. I love him. Jacques Pepin was hired by Howard Johnson to develop menus and do R&D in the 60s for his restaurants. And Howard Johnson insisted that everything be made fresh in every single store. That there was no central commissary. There was no frozen, reheated food. It wasn't, you know, like Applebee's. It was real food. Maybe that explained the crawling pace of the service could have been it but in those slightly less industrialized less centralized days that was actually pretty ambitious i don't think it lasted very long but you know everybody had to make good time had to get get back on the road so you couldn't stick around and wait for jacques pepin's food and i think that when you travel you're (coughs) excuse me you're thrown out of whack food wise you're like totally knocked off your off your schedule you're out of your element that's what happens to me. Like maybe you're in a different time zone or maybe you had to get up at like four o'clock in the morning to make your flight or, you know, you're away from your regular schedule, your, your structure of your days. I'm a very structured eater. I need to eat at certain times. And I find that it can make even me, even foodiness hardened, shelled me fall prey sometimes to foodiness pretty easily. When I'm on the road, it's like my resistance is down. It's like when I'm 
jet lagged, I can suddenly speak other languages very easily because my resistance falls away. And suddenly I'm almost fluent in Spanish. It's very strange. Adding in a drink makes it even easier to speak foreign languages, by the way. But when I have been traveling, and I've, I know I've talked about this before because it, it was a pivotal moment in my life, but some of the worst foodiness, and I think what made me sort of recognize foodiness to begin with was what I had encountered at the buffet breakfast that hotel chains offer. You know, like not, not like the high-end ho chains, hotel, you know. I'm not talking Ritz-Carlton here. I'm not even talking Marriott. I'm talking like Hampton Inn. Like not the cheapest not the Days Inn or the Motel 6, but that sort of in-between notch. And they go, oh, you get free breakfast with your room. And you go, oh, great, I get free breakfast. You know, or it's included in the room price. They always have these breakfast buffets and you go down and it's like, oh, it just makes me want to cry. There's always those little boxes, those pre-packed boxes of cereal. And you know how I feel about cereal. And they always, of course, include the foodiness-filled healthy option, like Raisin Bran, which you know has more sugar in it than a Snickers bar, or like Oat Bunches or something like that. I can't eat that shit. I can't eat that. And then, of course, there's yogurt because, you know, it's the healthy choices, but it's always across the board the healthy, in quotes, yogurt, the kind that has NutraSweet in it and is thickened with gelatin and is artificially flavored and has like colors in it and fake fruit gloop at the bottom you know f-r-o-o-t fruit at the bottom give me just some like fucking greek yogurt give me some real yogurt and then there's the toast right there's always like the toaster and there's the bread and there's like the white bread and then there's like the whole wheat bread that's really just white bread but they color it with sawdust and then there's like the frozen bagels i can't eat that either and then lord have mercy there's always the hard-boiled egg. Now, they are the industrial eggs that come from the industrial egg factory, but at least there's a hard-boiled egg. And usually that's what I wind up eating is the bad whole wheat toast and the hard-boiled egg. And then I have to go find myself some black bean soup at Panera or someplace like that. I eat a lot of industrial hard-boiled eggs on the road. We actually ate a lot of hard-boiled eggs on those car trips, I remember, as a child because for a long time they made me nauseous because I always got car sick and had to eat a hard-boiled egg. I don't understand the connection why I had to eat them when I felt sick. But anyway, that's another show. Even an industrial factory egg is better than a bowl of Raisin Bran or pink chemical yogurt. Now, luckily, I don't have to travel for business much. Really, not at all. I have friends who travel like five out of seven days a week sometimes for business. I don't know how they do it. So when I do stay in hotels, they you know it's either a vacation and it's someplace nicer or... I just go out and find something outside of the hotel and usually I'm okay. But actually the one of the, what I was saying is like one of the pivotal events for me in my life in creating this show was because of a hotel breakfast that I had last, I think it was last winter. The winter we had snow, not this past winter, the snowy winter last winter. I took my niece to the Poconos to go skiing And we found this really cool old hotel that had been like a historic railroad hotel. And we thought, oh, that's great. It's got charm and character and it's cool. And (coughs) of course, it was like it was like the Victorian era had like thrown up in there. And it was all this like tacky fake Victorian shit. But that was okay. I mean, the Victorian stuff was horribly overdone, but 
it was okay. I mean, I tolerated that. And, of course, they said, oh, and your room comes with breakfast. So, great. So, you know, we get there. We go out for dinner one night, some really bad dinner. We come back. We go to sleep. Next morning, we go down to breakfast. And it was seriously, like, all foodiness and all shit. Like, donuts. I'm not going to eat it. I'm going skiing. Give me some nutrition. I'm not going to eat a donut for breakfast. Nutri-sweet yogurt, fake whole wheat toast, but not even butter. There was margarine. There wasn't even margarine. There was that I can't believe it's not butter stuff. I can't believe that that shit's allowed to be sold to people. Because if you can't believe it's not butter, what are you believing it is? What is it? It's not food. It's not an edible product. Anyway, it was like that same old thing where they thought, oh, well, people want the healthy option. So we give them the Nutri-Sweet yogurt. And then the lady was like, oh, but we have a hot option too, which is cream cheese and strawberry stuffed French toast. It's like, really? In January, you're going to give me strawberries and cream cheese stuffed inside of white bread that you're then going to fry and serve with fake pancake syrup. No, thank you. Luckily, I got a hard-boiled egg. Saving grace. It was like (sighs) Bristol-Myers Squibb had written the menu in anticipation of then making money off of people in the future when they became diabetic and obese. So being out of your element and off kilter and off your schedule is tough. It can make you do and eat things you'd never otherwise do or eat. It's why I find myself sometimes sitting at a sports bar in an airport eating chicken wings instead of eating a power bar or NutraSweet yogurt. Or even like a cold packaged turkey sandwich. Because desperate times and all that, you know. We're going to take a quick break when we come back more about foodiness on the road. Out on the road, out on the road, that's where your wild oats were sowed. You start out a prince and you end up a toad, living out on the road. Room service is a trick, rarely a treat. So you go for a bite that can't be beat. But how many patty melts can one man eat when he's eating out on the road? A cat eats a fish, dog eats a bone. Out on the road, a man eats alone. Time to reflect and to atone for his sins out on the road. Running through airports at 43 is okay for OJ, but it's not for me with a hernia bad back and a bum knee and a guitar out on the road. Tom Jones, Vladimir, and Estragon, Kerouac, Genghis Khan. Out on the road, out on the road, the flight's been canceled. You should have known. The airport is your new abode. Living out on the road. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous Loudon Wainwright. Welcome back to Let's Get Real. I'm Erica Wides, your host. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, by the way. That was Loudon Wainwright. He's the father of Rufus Wainwright. Some people don't know that Rufus Wainwright also has a singing famous father. 
But I was a Loudon Wainwright fan before I even knew Rufus existed. I like both of them. The whole family sings. The sister, the mother. <coughs> Not my family. Anyway, so we were speaking of desperate times. I finished up the last segment by saying, you know, that even I succumb to road foodiness. And desperate times call for desperate measures. So remember the Donner Party? We're going to get back to them very shortly. So just when I decide to do my show this week on travel foodiness, which, by the way, is called They Don't Sell Food at 7-Eleven. The New York Times yet again steals my idea. The New York Times is constantly stealing ideas and material from me. It's really crazy. So the New York Times steals my idea and does a piece on airline food just this past Sunday. It's like they got inside my head and they said, what is she doing her show on this week? Let's do a piece on that just to screw with her. So they did a piece on Sunday's travel section, but it was actually a story about how difficult it is for the airlines to create high-end, flavorful, fancy-pants food for business and first-class travelers. Should we feel sorry? I don't know. Since they've now squeezed the very last penny out of us coach travelers and the rest of us 99 percenters, they're trying to attract more people now to fly on the so-called upper deck business first class. So they're trying to get them in with better meals, better food, better wine, etc. And they've hired famous chefs to come in, you know, name marquee chefs to come in, develop new menu items for them. They should hire me. I mean, seriously, who would be better at that than me? Are you listening, Delta? Bring these people in, cook stuff for them, you know, help them develop things that, of course, can be made in advance because, you know, all airline food has to be pre-made and then reheated on board because, you know, you can't actually do any cooking on an airplane. You can't have any open flame. You can't have any gas, like nothing. So it all has to be reheated either via convection or steam oven or microwave. Yes, indeed. No cooking allowed on planes. So in the article, this was actually really interesting. They talked about how Lufthansa, Lufthansa, the big German airline, hired, of course they did, sensory chemists to figure out why airplane food tastes bad. And what it turned out was that they, when they simulated the environment of the altitude and the pressurized air and the lack of humidity, all of those things contribute to us losing one third of our ability to taste we lose basically one third of our taste buds just go dead in the air isn't that weird the dry air also just kills your nose so you can't smell anything and if you can't smell you can't taste so our sensory levels are way below normal when way when we are way up at thirty thousand feet so that explains why they hand you out all the like very salty and very sweet snacks in coach since you can't taste anything else, anything with subtlety or complexity, they basically feed you like you're a fat toddler and all you want is salt and, and sugar. Which I guess explains why when I was 11 and I had that champagne, I didn't really like it. Maybe it's just because I was 11. But I did actually get to experience how the 1% fly last month when my friend Beach Flamholtz, who's probably listening, took me to Spain with him to, for free. Well, for almost free. For two and a half days, we went to Spain, basically for two and a half days. We flew business class. We almost flew first class, but our flight was canceled. So we got put in business. <sighs> but because we flew business class, we got to like lounge and loaf 
in a loush way in all the fancy business and first class lounges along the way and eat all the free food and have all the free drinks that they give you in those lounges and be treated like people with a name. Like we had names, not like we had cowbells around our necks. And after experiencing that, we actually got to go to the Concord Lounge at Heathrow, this like mythical place where only first class passengers get to go. It used to be only for the Concord passengers. It was like being at a seriously like fucking incredible hotel where everything was just given to you. I couldn't believe it. I very easily dropped all of my socialist leanings in those few hours. But after that experience, I can't understand why we, the 99%, aren't like storming the Bastille with lit torches and snarling rabid dogs fighting to get a share of what everybody else has. I don't understand that. I think we're all just too tired. So eating on the road or in the air isn't just like your typical trip down the foodiness rabbit hole. It's like getting your legs stuck in a rabbit trap and then falling down the hole. You're even more hindered because you're totally like knocked out of whack. It's like your basic movement is hindered already. So you give up the fight even more quickly. But, you know, historically speaking, eating while traveling has never been easy. Let's look back, shall we? Let's go back 3,000 years or so ago to the Odyssey. Remember the Odyssey? Now, back then, let me tell you, the Mediterranean Basin was not like it is today. You go to the Mediterranean now, and no matter what country you're in, you're going to find like shawarma and falafel and pizza, like every single country serves it, like they all invented it. The falafel wouldn't hit the big time in the Greek Isles for like at least another 1,000 years or so. So you had to bring all your food with you when you went to invade and pillage and conquer your enemies. And when you ran out of food, you had to hunt for it. And then you had to season it and cook it, whether it was like a ram or a bull or a boar, because that's what they ate in the Odyssey. And if you did run out, which Odysseus and his men did several times when they got lost on their way back from sacking Troy because they didn't have a GPS and they couldn't find anything else wild to hunt, what did they do? They stole someone else's cattle or pigs or they starved. You know, you got to you got to eat out there on the road on the sea. And that often didn't work out very well either because one time Odysseus and his men got caught trying to steal a pig from the Cyclops. You don't steal pigs from the Cyclops because you know what the Cyclops did? He turned around and he ate Odysseus's men instead. Now that's harsh. That's some pretty serious stuff. And then when Odysseus finally got back home to Troy after all of that to literally add insult to injury, he found that all these total bastards back home were trying to snatch his women and they had robbed him of most of his wealth, which was in the form of his enormous stores of livestock. Back then, rich people didn't eat veggie, frozen, faux bison burgers. They kept bison. They had tons of livestock and that's what they ate. You really were what you ate because that was your wealth. And then, of course, the Donner Party, who I mentioned earlier. Do you remember the Donner Party, learning about them? They were a group of American pioneers who set out west, like many, many thousands of people, which I seriously can't believe that people actually made it across. If you read my flog entry this week on letsgetrealshow.com, that's what the flog entry is about, heading west in a wagon. 
So the Donners, they went, started going west. They got caught in a really bad snowstorm somewhere like Idaho, Utah, something like that. They ran out of food. And you know what happened. We all know what happened to those Donners, right? Cannibalism. They had to eat each other. Now, they obviously did not take a cue from Rita and Bernie Wides and pack their Coleman coolers and their Coleman camping stove and their Tupperware full of dried fruit. Because that's what we did. If the Donners had done that, perhaps they would not have had to resort to the ultimate in last resorts. And of course, that's what also happened to those South American soccer players in that movie Alive. Remember, they crashed into the Andes and they had to resort to cannibalism too to survive. And they were soccer players. So they were probably very muscular, which would mean they would have had to braise each other to break down all that collagen. And I don't know if they actually could cook I don't remember in the movie if they cooked. Maybe they just ate. The Donners were probably pretty lean and tough, too. If my family had had to resort to cannibalism, I would have been the first one that they'd have eaten because I was the little fat kid. My little ballerina sister, who was all lean muscle, she would have survived. I would have been the first to go. Now, those soccer players, though, they probably, because they were on a modern-day airplane, they probably had, like, piles of little bags of peanuts and Bloody Mary mix to first use up. So they probably could have gotten through all that before they like set their drooling sites on each other. Today, they could have eaten the little snack boxes that they sell on the plane. You know, those little boxes, the snack box, little boxes of foodiness fun that are shelf stable. So they probably would have outlasted them all. Like long after the last corpse rotted and melted into the Andes, the snack box would still be fresh and good. And if they had eaten those snack boxes, maybe they would have survived a little bit longer before they actually had to start noshing on each other. Who knows? And my final example of historical troubles and travails of travel foodiness, of course, brings us to the Jodes. Remember the Jodes? Loudon mentioned them in his song. The Jodes were the family from the Grapes of Wrath. And when we talk about food on the road, I always think of the Jodes, those poor old Okies. You know, they left Oklahoma because it was the Dust Bowl and they were out of work and the farm was a failure and they were starving. So they headed off to California for a better life during the Depression. And, you know, there were barely roads. I mean, there were roads, but they were dirt roads. They couldn't stop at like a Taco Bell or 7-Eleven along the way. There were no Slurpees. And anyway, that would have slowed them down too much. They had to get to California. They had to make good time. Like my parents. Got to make good time. We're on our way. So what did the Jodes do? Well, the Jodes' wealth, like Odysseus, was in livestock. They had one pig left. They knew they couldn't take the live pig on the road with them. So they killed the pig. They butchered it by hand. Like here in Brooklyn. They butchered it by hand. They salted it down and they packed it in barrels. And you know what the Jodes ate? They ate artisanally cured, pastured, heritage pork on their journey westward. Very like proto-Bushwick, I would say. I think the Jodes maybe have been, were the, like the original locavores. Artisan cured, heritage, local pork from Oklahoma. They probably even made the barrel themselves, and they probably had beards. And you know, the more things change... And the indignity of it all is that when they got to California, they couldn't find any work. There was no work. They basically found themselves dumped in a refugee camp full 
of other bearded, under or out of work, underemployed or unemployed people wearing flannel shirts and suspenders and being refugees from the heartland, looking for work, picking fruit or, you know, making things or building things, but instead just sitting around, twiddling their thumbs, whittling, not texting, not twiddling their thumbs, texting, but whittling. Did I just mention that the more things change? It kind of sounds like Brooklyn to me. Oh, my God. Brooklyn is like a modern-day oaky refugee camp. Except the refugees here all have trust funds, so they're not going to starve, even though being extremely thin is very fashionable. So at least the Jodes vaguely knew where they were headed and what lay ahead for them. So the point, my point, is that eating on the road or in the air or in the Andes... Has always been tough. But let's get real. You may have to choose between a fast food hamburger and a plastic salad. Or between airport airport sports bar onion rings or a protein shake. But at least you've got options. And unless your delay turns truly ungodly, you won't have to start eating the other passengers. And if you've got some good drugs with you, like Ambien or Xanax, you can just knock yourself out and pretend it isn't happening at all. Just sleep through it. And at the same time, of course, you know, eating while you're traveling is, is pretty fucked up. I mean, it's some bad food. So what do you do on a realistic level? Well, the first thing you have to do is just lower your expectations. Even if you're someone like me who has no foodiness in their daily lives, you are not going to be able to travel and eat only real food that hasn't just been like severely destroyed. Or, like I said, you can get on the cocktail. If you get on the plane, get on the plane, have a cocktail. Ooh, must be the cold medicine I'm on. Get on the plane, put down the $7 or whatever they charge now for a cocktail. Take your Ambien, knock yourself out, and sleep through it. Like in Valley of the Dolls, part two, where when they wanted to lose weight, they would fly to a spa in Switzerland, get put into a medically induced coma, and sleep for two weeks to lose weight. You can think of your travel day as a fast day instead. There you go. Fasting is very in now. So just do it when you're traveling. Or you can actually try to bring some real food with you, which is what I try to do. You can bring things like fruit, not messy fruit, not like oranges, too messy, non-messy fruit, grapes, maybe dried fruit, even better, or like prosciutto or nuts or cheese, anything like that. Don't worry about the refrigeration. That stuff can last a long time out of the fridge. You've just been brainwashed to think, You have to refrigerate things, but you're okay. Don't bring anything that they will think is a gel, though. You can't travel with yogurt. Did you know that? You can't bring yogurt through security because it's a gel. You know what else is a gel? Pie. Pie is a gel. You can't travel with a pie. Don't bring, like I said, messy things. Nothing drippy, nothing too juicy, nothing where you need a napkin, nothing where you're going to need a fork. That doesn't work. You're going to make a mess. Now, I have to travel because, you know, little Miss Blow, little Miss Low Blood Sugar, that's me, I have to eat like every three hours, so I have to eat on the road. So, like I said, hard-boiled eggs, like back in the station wagon, bring hard-boiled eggs, make them yourself from good eggs. Don't worry about the refrigeration, they'll be okay. Nuts, cheese, apples, just like I said, it won't be that hard. Prosciutto's good. Like I said, that's very grapes of wrath of you. If you bring like some sort of cured meat, then you can pretend you're the Jode, a Jode sitting in your truck. 
But that is very salty, and you know, they never give you enough water on the plane either. So what do I do? I actually bring an empty water bottle with me. I bring it through security. I show them it's empty. I'm allowed to bring it. It's empty. As soon as I see a water fountain, I fill it up, and then I have a constant water supply on the plane. Of course, then you need an aisle seat because you'll be peeing the whole time. But it does save you all those stupid little plastic cups that they always give you too. And if you're in the car, you have a lot more freedom. Pack yourself like a little lunch bag with a little ice pack. Bring whatever you want. Bring a sandwich. Bring a leftover roast chicken. I don't know. It's food. Pack it up for yourself. Bring some wet, wet, what are they called? Wet naps. We used to have wash and dries in our car. Do they still make those? And if you don't do any of that and you have to go to like a fast foodiness kind of place or a drive through pick the good ones. Go to Obampan. Go to Panera if you can. A lot of the fast food chains are actually offering their versions of real food, like fruit, like cut up fruit or salad. It's going to be shitty, but it's still going to be better than eating the, you know, the burger. <clears throat> now, even 7-Eleven, which I mentioned in the title today, has something food like cut up fruit, maybe, or you could probably find an unsweetened yogurt there. I don't know. But remember, anything's better than a, than a Slurpee. Or you can just relax and give in and not fight it so hard. I mean, seriously, if you're listening to the show, you're doing something right. So you could have one or two foodiness filled days. It won't kill you. There are worse things to eat than power bars. And, you know, in this case, maybe you're just better off like eating a candy bar instead. I mean, when's the last time you just ate like a Snickers bar? It's got peanuts. It's got protein in it. If you're starving in the airport and you can't take your Xanax yet because you don't know when you're actually going to be on the plane, eating a real candy bar might be better than eating some kind of like faux protein power bar. The point is that actually by eating that power bar or by eating that candy bar, you're actually going to be sort of superior to that schmuck next to you who's eating the protein bar. Think about that for a minute. Hmm. And like I said, it is getting better out there, at least in airports. When we went to Spain, we went through Heathrow on the way, and I couldn't believe how unbelievably, amazingly good the food looked at Heathrow, at least in the new terminal, Terminal 5. And in a lot of cities in the U.S. with new airports, in New York City, of course, not so much. We don't seem to be able to put the capital or the creativity into bringing our airports into the 21st century. I think it has something to do with us being very proud of our history. And maybe we want our visitors when they come through our airports to experience the 19th century as part of their visit. Or maybe we want to make them suffer the same way that we do here every day. Since for those of us who do live here, every day is like a Donner Party day. Here in New York, it's eat or be eaten. Just make sure you're not eating shit. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week on Let's Get Real. Don't forget to visit the website, letsgetrealshow.com. You can also find me on Facebook. You can also follow me on Twitter at Let's Get Real Show. And you can always listen to all our shows on heritageradionetwork.com or on iTunes. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.